Welcome to the Gleaner Podcast for Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. I'm Chantal Hortop, Managing Editor for the Gleaner and host for this season of the podcast. If you tuned in last week, you'll remember that we spoke to some of those who run two of the historical societies in the Chateauguay Valley. This week, the Gleaner's Callan Forrester will be speaking to Murray McEwen, who took on the project of creating a documentary about the McEwen family's long history in Ormstown. As Callan speaks to Mr. McEwen about the project and how it came about, you'll hear about the history of agriculture in the valley and of an important local business, and most importantly, about the strong family ties behind the documentary. Happy listening! Thank you so much for for joining me today. I watched the McEwen Legacy documentary and I thought it was so interesting um, and so cool to see like how long your family has been in the valley. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to to chat with us today. Um, I was wondering if you could start just by introducing yourself, give us your name, um, and tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up in the valley. Well, my name is Murray McEwen. Um, the McEwen fam family has been in the valley since the early 1800s. And um, our parents were William and Catherine McEwen, a dairy farmers, Jersey cattle, honey home farm jerseys. My father often showed at the local fairs and exhibitions. And so the herd became known. And um, I was uh, born in, in 1929. And um, at that time, we didn't have any electricity. It was 1937 before we had electricity on the farm. So wow. we milked the cows by hand. And in 1937, did you start having more equipment on the farm or was it still done a little bit more by hand back then? No, the first thing we got was a milking machine. And, um, and a cooler for the uh, milk tank and a washing machine for mother because she had six children. And you were the oldest of the six children, is that correct? Yes, I was. That's, that's so cool. And what was that experience like growing up and balancing, you know, the farm and being the oldest sibling and also going to school and all of this stuff? Well, there was 13 years between us. Um, mm -hmm. um, I was the oldest, my sister Shirley, two years younger. And um, Ross, another two years younger. Then it was a space of a few years, and then Jean and Anne and Alton. So there were six of us on the farm. And so you grew up working quite a bit with your father in the farm. Did you always know that you wanted to go into food and agriculture as an adult as well, or did you kind of discover that as you grew up? I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. So I discovered all these things uh, day by day. And so in 2023, this documentary was was made about your family and about, you know, the legacy that you you have here in the Valley. I'd love to know what your reaction was like when you found out that this was going to be a project that your family was a part of. Well, it, um, I guess I was the one that started the uh, the idea of making a legacy uh, video and because there was the opportunity to have six stories because there were six children. And so the... Um, the people making the film, Shannon Eckstein, um, she interviewed everybody in both and all the families and uh, created the stories. And what was it that kind of inspired you wanting to to start this project and have it be out there for others to to get to experience? Well, I had seen a video um, made by uh, Shannon of a hospice that was uh, uh, in the community, and uh, I was introduced to her. And I saw this as an opportunity to tell the stories of the, the legacy of mother and father, because the six of us all had different stories. 
And um, I thought there was so creative material there that maybe uh, we could make stories out of. I didn't realize that it was you that had kind of started and spearheaded the project. I think that's amazing. I'd love to know, like, did you have any other experience? Had you ever done any on-camera work before or was this totally a new world for you? Totally new world. Oh yeah? And what was it like getting to be on a film set like this where you suddenly had cameras and mics and when it like started coming to fruition, what did that feel like? I guess after the first five minutes of nervousness, it, it uh, became a question and answer period. And um, we just had to reach back into our memories and try and come up with the interesting things that should be on a film. Something that I thought was really cool watching the documentary was like how there are still so many parallels between then and now, like talking about the fairs and the exhibitions. And, you know, the Ormstown Fair is still such a huge part of the Valley's culture. I'd love to know how you've kind of seen these things grow and change um, throughout your life uh, and, and up till now. Well, we were always involved in what we called the Calf Club, but now it's the 4-H Club. And um, so um, we were involved with things at the fairs. And so we we got to know what was going on there. And the, the, the biggest part, the one with the biggest legacy was uh, Steve Borland with uh, 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 Rapid Bay Farms. And, and he had Jersey cattle, which was the same thing my father had. And, and Steve, uh, he, he got to know our farm that was across the river, actually, from his farm. And uh, there was the making there of a great story. Um, Steve had, has a great story, as you probably know, mm-hmm. known worldwide for his, his champion Jersey cattle. How many generations are actually featured in the documentary? Is it four generations that are spoken to? Yes, I guess there were. I think... The fourth generation was probably uh, pretty young and maybe not there to be involved because when it, you know you know it was only made it was made in 2023 so it was mm-hmm. only the people that were alive then our generation uh, there were six of us but surely our sister had passed away um, and Shirley's offspring was Steve Steve Borland and now. I'd also love to know, um, so you worked, obviously you grew up on the farm, then you worked at uh, Green Giant for a while, and then moved to PEI, and now you're in Ontario, I believe, right? Yes. So you've kind of been, you know, in multiple places across Canada. I'd love to know how you've uh, experienced the differences across the provinces that you've had the chance to work in. Well, I guess um, agriculture is everywhere, but uh, um, when, when I was at home on the farm, we um, uh, showed the cattle, uh, helped father show the cattle. And then we uh, uh, we worked at the Green Giant Company because we were uh, going off to college. We needed money, and um, I worked there for actually. Uh, uh, I worked there for over fifteen years at the Green Giant Company, and then had a chance to go to Prince Edward Island to build a frozen food plant, and um, which you would know today as Cavendish Farms. Oh, cool. And sorry, you said you were there to like build it. So you were there from the beginning of that and seeing it kind of take off. I was the first employee, went down there and we bought a farm. We built a plant on it. It was an American company that had, was putting the money in. And um, they sent an en- engineer up and we built the plant in six months. We, um, um, it was 1961. We, we planted crops in May. And the plant wasn't even hardly started then. 
And so it had to be ready by October. We had it ready by October, and so we processed crops at that time. We had spinach, uh, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and and so that was the the start of the frozen food world in Prince Edward Island. That's so cool. That must have been such a learning curve to be able to to watch that be like as the first employee to watch it from just its seeds right into what it is today. Well, it was because we had to go and hire people. Right. We had to hire somebody in charge of the manufacturing, somebody in charge of the uh, contracting with the farmers and put together a whole team. And um, and and we did. Wow. That's that's such a unique experience. Not many people can say that they've they've done something like that. And so after your time in PEI, I know you worked with Red Path for uh, like the sugar company for a little while. I would love to know a little bit about your work on the development of artificial sweetener or zero calorie sweeteners like Splenda. Well, um, um, in the sugar company, we uh, we were refining and selling mm-hmm. sugar. Uh, high intensity sweeteners started to come on the market, um, equal, aspartame, other ones and so we scratched our head to say is there something else we could do turns out that uh, red path was owned by a british company called tate and lyle and uh, they had quite a research department there the fellow in charge of the research department had a friend who worked at the um, at a london hospital and in the work he did he stuck his finger in some powder that he'd been playing with and found it was sweet all of a sudden so he talked to our research people about this. They sensed there was something there that we could work on, and and we did. And so we researched it and found that we had a product that we could commercialize, and we knew we had to go through a lot of approval processes, Food and Drug Administration and health departments everywhere. We didn't have real good contacts in those places. So we took on Johnson & Johnson or J&J mm. as partners because they are very familiar with that business. It turned out that we did have a sweetener that we could market. It was uh, 600 times the sweetest sugar. Oh my God. Um, and uh, so it had to be uh, combined with uh, some uh, starch so you could get equivalent of a teaspoon. And um, we called, the pl- called it Splenda. And, um, we started to uh, to sell it. Today, Splenda is the leading high intensity sweetener yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that must be that must be such a, a huge achievement in your your long career. Well, I remember when we introduced it first in Canada, and um, so for my sins, they asked me to make a, a video, and uh, so I was interviewed on it, and I explained to the public um, that this is what we had. And we we did the film, and we did it in French. So I had to brush up my French. <laughs> um, I had passable French that I learned when we worked at the Green Giant Company. We called it agricultural French, and um, but uh, they got me polished up enough that I could make a video uh, about Splenda in French as well. Wow, that's so cool! And eventually, like you know, with your long career working in, in food and all of this, um, you ended up appointed to the Order of Canada in, was that 2014? Yes. That must have felt incredible. What was that experience like? Well, it was kind of unbelievable. I got a phone call from uh, Ottawa and they said who they were. 
I didn't believe it at first. And so they said that uh, I had been uh, uh, nominated uh, to join the Order of Canada. And would I accept? Well, I was so flabbergasted. And so when I picked myself off the floor, I said, yes. And so they said, okay, they would go ahead with the process of uh, the ceremonies that were involved in it. So you had no idea that you were like being considered at all. There was no short list or anything that had come out first. Nothing. That's part of the secret of the the way this, the Order of Canada nominations work. Nobody knows. Wow, that's that's a phone call that'll change your life. You said that you went through the ceremonies and stuff to be appointed. What was that process like? Well, it was lovely. Of course, the Governor General was there. All the pomp and circumstance that you can imagine that goes on. They were about, uh, uh, I think there were about 45 people in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the ceremony and uh, was held in uh, the Rideau Hall. Wow. Now, just circling back to the documentary and your family a little bit, um, I found one thing very clear when watching it that in the Valley especially, we see so many generations, you know, get to grow up together and cousins who are more like siblings. And I'd love to know if you could share some thoughts on that family and, and working together like that and how that kind of shaped you in your career. Well, in the family, you never know if they're going to, everybody who stay in agriculture. Um, and, and our family uh, didn't, except for Shirley, who uh, married Archie Borland, and, uh, and they had a farm and, on the, uh, on, uh, in Ormstown. And so they were the, really the, the only one of the six of us who stayed in pure agriculture. The rest of us were off. Alton and I were in the food industry. Um, but um, uh, we weren't in, in direct in farming. No. And, you know, now that the documentary is out and edited and stuff, has the family had a chance to, to watch it together or to talk about it together? Well, yes, they have. Yeah? We, we had an opportunity at our, we have an annual clan gathering of the McEwans, and it was held at Steve's farm in the summer, in August, and uh, we had a showing of the, that was the first showing of the uh, video called the, the Legacy of William and Catherine McEwen of Ormstown. And what was that like getting to experience this with all of the members of your family? Well, it was quite emotional for some because it showed some of the successes that uh, the various families had had. Um, people learned things about each other that they didn't really know before. And uh, so it was a, quite an emotional experience. Um, but anyway, at the end, everybody clapped and laughed and said, hey, we've, we've got a good story here for the future. But the real intent of it, mm. it's not about what happened. It's about for the f- future generations. The problem that always existed was we didn't get a, enough information from our parents about what they had done when they grew up. And this looked like an opportunity to create something with modern technology that people that aren't even born yet can look back to see what their ancestors were like and what they did. And, and that was the, really the genuine, the real reason of, of making the, the legacy uh, story for the future generations. 
Right. Yeah, I think that that was really clear in the making of the the film too that like, you know, there's a reference to how um even you can track the Shadigy Valley families all the way back to like small towns in Scotland, right? And it it's it's going to be so cool for future generations to to have that. Why do you think that it's uh important to preserve like family memories and family traditions and family history for a long time? Like why why was that something that was so important to you? I think it's only important in a person's mind. Some people don't care, and there are some are semi-interested, and some are just have a passion to know what went on, and and so that's it was for those that have a passion, and hopefully convert the others that didn't have. That it is interesting to know what went on, and and visually see it. Cool. And do you know what is next for this documentary? Like, where can people watch it, and if it's going to be at any festivals, anything like that? No, it's really for the family. The family has it. Um, there's no intention at all that it is going to be in a public. Uh, the family could show it to friends and and whatnot if they want to. That's mm -hmm. their decision. It's it's not a story for uh, uh, for the public. That's nice that you have this thing that's that's just for the family that you can have as as you know your parents' legacy, but also your legacy and and your kids' legacy. That's that's really really beautiful. That, that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. I think those were all of the the questions that I wanted to ask you about it today. But I'd love to know if there's anything that I've left out, maybe that I've missed, that you want to share or talk about that you think is important. Well, I don't think so. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I think the work you're doing in things like this is very important for the community. Um, there's a lot of history in the community, and, and this shows some of it. Yeah. There may be other people have other stories to tell. Um, what you're doing is important. Well, thank you so much. That's very kind. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's it's cool to be working for a newspaper where there's, you know, where it's the 160th anniversary of the Gleaner. It's cool to see how much we've changed and grown over the last century and a half. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a, a great conversation. What a fascinating family and an extraordinary project. I know many other families out there have some history they would like to preserve for future generations, and maybe hearing this story could inspire them to record it in the same way. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday, January 24th, for a chat between the Gleaners Sarah Rennie and Holly Dressel, who will be speaking about the history of environmental activism in the Chateauguay Valley. This podcast is made possible in part by funding from the Government of Canada through the Official Language Community Media Consortium, as well as a grant from the Bourse d'Initiative en Entrepreneuriat Collectif, a call for projects designed to support the creation and development of social economy enterprises and projects across the Montérégie region. Sound editing and sound design for the Gleaner podcast is done by Stacey Pennington. Our theme music is by Christopher Pennington. It is produced by me, Chantal Hortop. Don't forget to subscribe to the Gleaner podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. For more Gleaner content, check out our website at www.the-gleaner.com. I'll also put that link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.